Nation Reaching Nations is focused on highlighting innovative stories from cross-cultural, local, and global missions, missions from the majority world, and culturally contextual teaching. The missionaries' stories and idea of this podcast are based on connecting through Houston and serve as an example of how the gospel is spreading from everywhere to everywhere. Our hope is that the stories that you hear on this podcast will help equip you to reach those around you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Nations Reaching Nations podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Today is going to be a bit of a different show for us. Uh, The program today comes at a a very trying time as the Taliban has uh, essentially retaken Afghanistan in the wake of our troops leaving. Most of our episodes, if this is your first one to tune in on, we we focus a lot on uh, cross-cultural missions, uh, m- missions from the majority world, from uh, multi-ethnic missions, uh, Christ and culture, these kinds of issues. And so to, to delve into uh, geopolitics is a bit of a different uh, stroke for us. It's, it's certainly a different step. Um, but I think that uh, I've, I've got quite a few connections right here in the greater Houston area, uh, whether they're school contacts or uh, Christian work contacts or other kinds of things. And I think they each bring a very unique perspective. And so I'm just giving you a little bit of warning. If, if you're raw from the news, this might not be uh, the episode for you to listen to. But uh, I want to invite you in, in any way to, to listen and to hear what each of these uh, guests have to say about this very important and very breaking topic in our world. My first guest on the program today is one of my former students from seminary. Um, We met in class, and I noticed that whenever I would talk about Middle Eastern life, politics, culture, history, etc., and when I would jump from one to the other, uh, he was tracking every step of the way and didn't need any kind of uh, explanation. And so we just got into some really interesting uh, interesting conversations, and I learned he had a pretty fascinating background. He spent um, more than 25 years working in counterterrorism and security assistance in a number of areas. The reason that he's of interest for our show today is one of those areas uh, is Afghanistan. And lest you pigeonhole him and think of him only uh, as a military, uh, military guy, uh, he does have... Uh, his MDiv now from Fuller Seminary, and he is currently serving as a pastor uh, in North the North Houston area. Johnny, when I'm looking over your bio, it makes me realize that the class where you and I met, where I was teaching you, maybe the role should have been reversed, where you should have been teaching me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. I learned a lot in that class. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad you learned a lot. Um, so, you know, you of course are, are an expert in the region that we're talking about. Is it is it safe to call it a crisis at this point? It feels like that's a pretty safe bet watching the news. I mean, it's a crisis if you're going to talk about the steady state being what it is the last twenty years, right? Where we're looking at Afghanistan as though it's a modern Western state, but if you're looking at it from what Afghanistan has traditionally been, it's really just reverting back to what it was in the past. 
Right, right. So let's talk about the past. Let's, let's start with some context because of all the sure. guests that I'll be interviewing for today's show, um, I think you've probably got the best breadth of, uh, of knowledge um, regarding the past. So kind of in my own consciousness, uh, I pick up on Afghanistan's history somewhere in the Cold War. Do you feel like that's a safe jumping off point for kind of modern understanding of Afghanistan? Um, yeah, let's go back a little further. Okay. So let's, let's go to the eighth century for just a moment. Um, where Tell us Islam about the 8th century. <laughs> so where Islam comes into Afghanistan. So the Mongols actually bring Islam into the Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is a lot like it is today. It's been mostly mountainous people, mountainous villages, and very rugged, and it's what mountainous people tend to be, whether it's the highlands of Scotland, whether it's, you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys in Appalachia or Afghanistan. There are groups of clans who don't want to be messed with, and they don't be told what to do. Islam, though, takes root in the 8th century and stays the predominant religion there. Um, It doesn't really unify the country as we know it. Afghanistan is something we have to flash forward to in history a little longer. So you go back to the 18, now you flash forward to the 1800s. It's still these bunch of clans in these mountain villages. You can't really talk about Afghanistan or Afghan people because there's a whole bunch of different ethnic tribes and a bunch of different languages and everything else. But in the 1800s is when you start getting this idea that maybe we should be bound together as something. Now, in the meantime, you know, the Romans had tried to go in there, didn't make a go of it. The Brits tried to go in there, didn't make a go of it. Later on, the Soviets are going to try to go in there and not make a go of it. And right. the U.S. is going to try to go in there and not make a go of it. It's how the place has gotten the reputation and the nickname, the Graveyard of Empires. Yeah, that's, so, that's fascinating. So... Basically, religion is the thing that kind of always sort of held the place together when no one else or no other governmental structure can. And the 1800s, especially in the 1900s, you have this thing, the Muslim Brotherhood starts in Egypt. Right. And a very similar movement happens in the universities in um, Kabul, and people want to start systematizing their Islam in Afghanistan. Right. And the Taliban movement starts. Starts yeah. in what's now Pakistan and Afghanistan, and Talib in Arabic is just student. So Taliban is just plural students. Mm-hmm. And you have this notion that they're getting back to the core of Islam. So it's very Wahhabist in a lot of ways. And their idea of Islam is what, what, what it was in the 7th century when the Prophet Muhammad was walking the earth. And it's what you see today. So now you see... Taliban have taken back control. They're making people grow beards again. You can't listen to music. Right, right. You can't have cell phones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because the Prophet Muhammad didn't have ice in his drinks, so by God, you can't have ice in yours. <laughs> right. And so that's basically a, a basic foundation of what you think of as what Afghanistan is. And so when the Russians come in and say, we're going to take over and have a warm water port because we've always wanted one, they're like, we're not having any of that. You guys are infidels. We helped the Taliban, kicked them out. Right. But then when we decided that we didn't like foreign fighters from Saudi Arabia and other countries because they were exporting their extremists to Afghanistan because it was a safe place to go, we didn't care for that. So we went in, and they were having none of that. And so they fought us until we left. Yeah, so this kind of brings us up to uh, uh, the the modern moment. Um, 
could you just summarize exactly what is happening? Because I'm sure as people are listening to this, uh, probably the average person in today's world gets most of their media, uh, most of their news off of Facebook links and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, how would you summarize exactly what is happening in this exact moment? So the Afghan folks I worked with when we were teaching them about how to be a better military, how to be a good police force and the basics of Western civilization as far as law and military go. The fact that a civil society dictates what the government, what the military does, not the other way around. Um, One thing that would constantly come up all the time when you're having tea with these folks or when you're in their homes is the fact that, look, this is all great and everything. We know you're going to leave one day. And so in the back of their minds, so the one thing that's a little bit irksome for me and a lot of my veteran friends who spent a lot of time there is, oh, these guys just cut and ran. We gave them all this money and we trained them and they're just inept and they just ran away. Well, you know, we were there for 20 years, which sounds like an awful long time, but we were in Germany for a lot longer time. And there was still residual Nazism even in the 80s and early 90s. Right. Germany didn't reunify for a long time after World War II. We stayed there and ensured that all that was completely rooted out. And they had a really decent history of what it was like to be a Western republic so really we didn't give them of time in my opinion right and they knew that we weren't going to stay well and and that's kind of i feel like when many uh muslim countries arab countries uh south asian countries there's this mentality when the u.s or other outside forces gets involved there's this mentality of we'll wait and so you can see this like in the caucuses where, you know, they'll talk about their own history of, well, this group came through at this point and they made us this religion. And then this other group came through and they made us that religion. And now there's this group, but, you know, one day they'll be gone too. We'll wait. And so 20 years with a mentality that's generational, it, it doesn't seem like enough time, really. Right. And so what happened when the Taliban started making headway, especially in the rural areas, very quickly, if you look at a map from May 5th until now, it's just, I mean, the country went completely, if, if the regions and the, and the provinces are red, that are became control of the Taliban, if you look at that, it just became red. The whole country became red in three months. And it didn't help that we decided to completely leave during a fighting season. Afghanistan actually has a fighting season. It starts in the first or second week in May. Um, it's just too stinking cold to fight there in the winter. So in the winter, you just you don't fight, okay. right? And if that's always happened even in clan warfare, which is kind of this understood thing that, like, come along about November, December, you're like, it's just too freaking cold to fight. Um, we're just going to, you know, pack it up and, like, go to the mountains, refresh, regroup, right? get fat, okay, go back and fight again. We left. Literally, we started pulling out during the, the beginning of fighting season. Wow. So we signaled to them, basically, that – if you understand the culture, we signal to them that, hey, look, we want you to take over. Wow. So we're pulling out, and in the wake, the Taliban is, I mean, were they already taking over as the troops were pulling out? Or, I mean, was this happening simultaneously, successively? How is this going on? It seemed like it was simultaneously. I mean, I've been out of that game for about five years now, but um, my friends are telling me that basically as they were leaving some of the smaller provinces earlier, they were already kind of starting to take over. And I know, um, at least from the reports I've been seeing, basically the Afghan army, um, they saw their provinces being overran, and they have two choices, stand there and fight, but be overran by the sheer numbers of it, and know that they don't have air support from the U.S., and the government is collapsing behind them, or honestly, 
take your weapons, take off your uniform, go home and make sure your family's being taken care of. I mean, I don't think there's many people that would make the decision to stand to and fight. So I don't blame them at all. So you brought up the Muslim Brotherhood and the Muslim Brotherhood started as a movement by educators. Um, All of the main kind of fountainheads of the movement were educators And yet over time, it morphed from not being able to accomplish what they were trying to fix with education into a political movement for a period into even a terrorist movement. Um, And then I think back into a political movement in the more modern history. Obviously, for people my age and older who are thinking about the word Taliban, uh, you know, there's one face that comes to mind when we think of Taliban, there's one image that comes to mind. Does the Taliban also have a past like the Brotherhood of uh, kindler, gentler days that just got taken over by Osama bin Laden? Or is is he really the true uh, kind of poster child for the movement? So the interesting thing about Osama bin Laden is they would not consider him Taliban. So right, because he's Saudi. <laughs> He was Saudi and he was a guest. So he was a guest of the Taliban. And so they would always make a distinction between him and Al-Qaeda and them. Um, But to answer your question, I always kind of equate and I always get into a little bit of a a danger for this. I want to preface it before I go on with this analogy, but it's kind (laughs) of like like... where you're headed already. Keep going. (laughs) My my um, I grew up um, Pentecostal. Oh, boy. And so I have an uncle who is a, a dear brother in Christ who wasn't a Christian for a lot of his life. And he's a construction worker, mm-hmm. and he's never been to seminary. And he grew up in a good Christian home, but he probably was in his – I think he was in his, like, 30s when he became a Christian, maybe even a little older than that. But when he became a Christian, he was super convicted by Christ, and he became a pastor. He really feels the Holy Spirit says you have to become a pastor. So he literally built a church. He had a construction company, and he, now he's a pastor. And he's been one for years and years, and by all accounts, a good one, but he has no formal training. And this is very similar to the Taliban. So you go up in these mountains like I talked about, right? There are no madrasas. There are no, you know, these guys aren't going to Egypt to get formally trained some of the best schools in high Arabic. Um, A lot of them can't read Arabic. A lot of them can't read the Quran. They're being taught, you know, five generations down the road by people who – have memorized probably, you know, a few verses of the Quran. And so their depth of Islam a lot of times is some popular verses and Mm -hmm. a lot of popular Islam. Mm -hmm. But within that structure, they've done a lot of good. So they have the spirit of the religion, kindness and gentleness, but then it's mixed with this, um, this clan warfare mentality of you took one of our goats, we're going to come and wipe out your village. So (laughs) to answer your question, um, no, (laughs) yeah, the Taliban have always been kind of like this force you don't want to mess with, Mm, mm. but they weren't this big overarching force that like had large tracts of land. They were always just kind of some of the Taliban, some places were more gentle than others. They were always Pashtun. They were always a certain ethnic group, which is another consideration. Yeah. In uh, in a lot of my studies into uh, the Muslim world, as one thing that we've noticed is that when there's high identity in terms of identifying as Muslim or, or with Islam, but very low knowledge, that creates a very dangerous mix. Everyone thinks, well, if someone knows a lot about Islam, they're the most dangerous 
whatever. And, and I don't actually think that's true. I think it's the people who are uh, very publicly, prominently identified with it, but very low in knowledge because they are actually the ones that are able to be exploited. I think that that spectrum that I just laid out is actually true with any religion, right? Like if we yeah, wanted, absolutely. if we were trying to incite something with Christians here in the States, we wouldn't go to the seminary and find theologians or theology students. You know, we'd go out to the sticks and find people who are all, you know, God and country, but probably don't know three verses in the Bible. Uh, right. Probably get those guys to do just about anything if you spun it correctly. And, and I came into that when I would uh, I'd start interacting with some of the folks. It's our Taliban. Well, when we were there, in the U.S., right? They didn't just disappear or go away. They didn't shave their beards and act like they weren't Taliban. They were still there. They're a social group. They're part of society. Mm-hmm. And I would interact with them as well. And, you know, the first few times I tried to interact with them, not really understanding that, I figured, oh, they're they're deeply Muslim. So I would see them, and, you know, I had the beard as well, like I do now. And, I, you know, As-salamu alaykum, gay fahalik. And, you know, they would look at me like, like they didn't speak Arabic. Mm. Like, not a they spoke Quranic Arabic right. a little. And so then I would get into conversations with them and said, Oh, yo, in the Hadith, you know, Prophet peace be upon him said this and they didn't know that. Hmm. So I quickly had to reorient my thinking. Because I just kinda had a thought that, oh, you're Talib, you are a student of Islam. But I had to quickly understand no, it was more of a pop Islam. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So you know, I've seen the videos of the plane pulling out of the airport. And honestly, the first time I, I saw it, I thought it must be someone putting together something with computer graphics. I mean, I, I could not believe my eyes seeing what I was seeing. And immediately my eyes, you know, growing up in the computer generation, started looking for the tells of, uh, right. of, of video editing. And it took a couple of times through of going, wait, this is, this is not spoof footage. Uh, and, and part of it is there's one guy like waving to the camera, which kind of, you know, there's a, this, uh, it's jarring visually. It's jarring to see him waving while other people are climbing onto a massive, you know, airplane that's rolling. Um, and, and so literally my eyes cannot believe what I'm seeing. And yet this is what's happening. And, and I noticed, um, I, I want to say it was, uh, president Biden or somebody, maybe someone quoting Biden talking about how this is not going to be. Uh, like the pullout in Vietnam with, you know, everybody going to the rooftop on a helicopter. And then it, I mean, that almost seemed to be prophetic of, of what appeared to be that. Is this just the right captured media footage of, of a, a rare event? Or is this, you know, really what's going on on the ground? Um, everything I've heard is it's what's going on, on the ground. And um, it's just kind of a mess. I mean, we were going to pull out and I think that if we weren't going to stay there and I remember saying something on September 12th in 2001, I was talking to a general and we were talking about this and he was asking me at the time I was in counterterrorism and I was one of the few people in counterterrorism in the air force. And, um, he was asking me, well, what I thought we should do. And I told him quite frankly, I think we should go into Afghanistan and we should destroy the training camps we should destroy, kill the foreign fighters as, as best we can and then leave. It should be a small operation, just special operations. We should go in and do some bombing and leave. And he said, what do you think we're going to do? And I said, the other thing. We're gonna, <laughs> we'll are gonna, we go in and we'll get sucked into mm. longer, bigger battles. Then we'll wind up from that. It'll start turning into a state-building you know, state thing. He said, we think that'll work. I said, if we're still there in 2050 – and we have dependent schools. If we have Department of Defense schools for our children in Kabul in, 50, in 2050, we have mm. a shot. 
but the American public doesn't have that kind of buy-in for us to stay that long. It's kind of the roulette fallacy. So there, there's there's in logic they call it the roulette fallacy. It's where uh, it's a gambling term, right? So where others have failed, we will succeed, even doing the same thing. And so I mean, you mentioned the amount of civilizations that have come through there and tried to make it stick, that have just died there and had to leave, and yet you know maybe it's that cowboy American mentality of well we'll you know we're in, we wear the white hat we'll we'll get it done. So you've spent uh, more than 25 years um, doing security assistance. Um, h- how much of that was in the in the region here? I'd say most of it. I started off okay. as a German-Russian linguist. That was at the tail end of the Cold War. Wow. And then when the Russian, you know, the Germans and the Russians gave up on, on communism, I had to pivot. And I happened to be in Bosnia at the time, and I saw Saudis there marrying um, Bosnian nationals. And I was like, what's going on there? And it turned out there was a terrorist situation where basically the same kind of Saudis were going to Afghanistan were also going to Bosnia and starting training camps and and wanting to have terrorism in in the Balkans. And it got me interested in terrorism. So I've been basically most of that time was in was in the Middle East and dealing with Muslim terror, uh, Islamic terrorists. So you spent most of this time in the region and you know, I think for the average American, 20 years feels like a lifetime, even though I think we both agree it's it's not, particularly in this part of the world that's that's so old. Um, right. How do you, I mean, you watch the same footage I'm watching, you know, how do you feel about your time there and the blood, sweat, and tears that you and, I mean, countless others have poured in? Uh, what What's kind of the takeaway here? Oh, oh, I'm still struggling with that myself. Um, And there's a lot of trauma that a lot of folks in the veterans community are really trying to Mm -hmm. process right now. I wasn't kind of the traditional combat vet type of person. I mean, I was doing a lot of embedded stuff in with the military and with civil society with Afghanistan and Saudi and some other places. So, um, but now I'm a pastor. And so a lot of my friends, even before I was a pastor, I was kind of the guy people would call, but now folks who I mentored when I was in the service, and now people know me as they call me chap because I was going to seminary, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the chaplain for them because they don't have an, uh, any other spiritual outlet. I've been getting fielding calls left and right all day today and yesterday, and they're asking me those questions. How should I feel about this? You know, mm-hmm. I don't have an arm anymore, or we lost so-and-so, or you mm-hmm. know, I, just, I did six tours there, and, and what was it for? I wish I had a good answer. I mean, I I should, right? I went to seminary. You're one of my professors. <laughs> I should have some kind of great spiritual answer. And I just, um, I've been telling the ones who believe in Jesus to lean into Jesus because I, I still think we did good work there. I think there's a lot of girls, particularly, who got education that wouldn't have had education otherwise. Mm-hmm. And they got out and they went to grad school in the UK and the US. Um, I like to think that there was an example set. And that there's going to be a level there, the stuff that we couldn't do overtly, I think there's going to be examples set where they saw women in their society being policemen and being filmmakers and authors and members of parliament, that that's going to stick somehow. And I like to think that when they start spewing their their hatred about Jews and about Christians, that at least some people are going to say, well, I saw some Christians, Mm -hmm. and they weren't that way at all. They brought me food and... They were pretty nice people, and they stood up, and when they were going to burn down my girl's school, you know, that one guy with the weird beard who's talked with Arabic with a funny accent, he, he made sure that didn't happen. Hmm. 
So, and they, I, he was a Christian. So I like to think that maybe that residual thing happened. And I also know that trusting in the Holy Spirit, that even though it looks bad and it looks like it's hopeless, that it never is. Mm-hmm. And I know that we worship a, a God who left a tomb. It's not full, it's empty. So yeah, that's, that's what I got. <laughs> there, there's, I think there's a lot of comparisons between, you know, military and missions. And I, you've, you've had my class, so you know I, I feel a little bit hesitant to make those. But um, oftentimes, even in mission work, you feel the same thing, where you go into a country, you establish some kind of beachhead, if you will, while we're using the, you know, military lingo. And uh, at some point, the politics change and everybody gets kicked out and you're kind of, you know, you're going, so, so what was it for, God? And it's the same kind of almost disillusionment that you can feel. And I would say there's just, there's value in obedience. And sometimes we think about success and accomplishment and not that that's bad or wrong. It's, it's just our culture and we're programmed to think success and accomplishment. And, you know, certainly for any kind of activity, you need to have an objective that's obtainable or that you're trying to obtain. Um, and so that's harder when you can't or when the, the situation gets reversed. So you've brought up, um, you know, the role of faith, and you're a pastor now. Um, I know a lot of Christians around the world right now are praying for Afghanistan, the Afghan people, or peoples, I should say. And how do you—I mean, you've, you've had a, a much deeper inside look to, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly there in Afghanistan— uh, you probably know better than any of us, you know, the kinds of things that are going to be coming. Um, how should Christians be praying during this time? Or what should the church be doing during this time? Um, I mean, for specific prayers for the Afghan people is, it's it's going to be hard to be a moderate Muslim in Afghanistan now, because there's going to be a backlash. We're already seeing it. And I think it's it's critical. It's critical for us to pray for them. And I know that sounds weird sometimes in certain circles to you know we want to pray for them to all to have Christ. You know we want to go from A to Z. Right. And but <laughs> right. the thing is in that situation, like I read, I was looking up real quick some stats because I haven't done Afghanistan in four or five years, so I was looking up some stats to make sure I had my stuff in my head right for this. And um, I read that the latest stats are there's between 500 and 8,000 Christians in Afghanistan. And that's basically the kind of stuff I saw when I was there, which Mm -hmm. tells you that people are not identifying as Christians. Like, I knew I came in contact with Afghan Christians while I was there. Not one time did they tell me they were. Mm. Because even then, they were scared to death to say they were, because they knew that we were going to leave. And so the church there is—when you say underground church, they were super underground. Like, when I was in Saudi— um, I, I was in some underground churches there, and it's pretty bad to be a, a Saudi Christian, but they're a lot more open than in Afghanistan. They just will not hmm. acknowledge it. So we obviously should pray for them, because I know there are Christians in Afghanistan. But even just pray that the moderate Muslims can continue to be moderate Muslims. Hmm. In in my time in Egypt, um, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, took hold politically, and a lot of people— were super upset by this uh, for obvious reasons and I kind of always looked at Iran as a model from a mission standpoint um, so from the west we look at any of any Muslim country and we just assume oh they're all really hyper Muslim they all know their Quran inside and out they're all in lockstep um, you know it's an Islamic like, country like like they look at us right exactly yeah we're the, these good Christians <laughs> over here um, 
And so, but then you, you realize like in there, in the average religious person, I mean like a truly knowledgeable, true, truly religious person on, on their side, they look at their government and go, just like we look at ours and go, our government's not Christian. Our media is not Christian. Our, you know, none of this is Christian. And right. so they, they really still want to try Islam. And I'm kind of using air quotes there. Which, right. again, feels really odd to us because in our mind, I mean, Egypt was 95% Muslim. I mean, I'm sure Afghanistan is, I don't know, 99 point whatever percent Muslim. Um, right. And so in our minds, I they've met, tried it. I met the two Jews. I met the two Jews in Afghanistan oh, when boy. I was there. Yeah, there's only one now because one guy died, but I met the two. Wow. So. <laughs> and and so I, I just kind of think about that. You know, sometimes we get so afraid because um, – we see them trying Islam in our age and we think, well, they've already tried it. They should know better. But actually for most places, they don't, they don't think that they have. And at least in Iran, you know, they're seeing tons of people come to Christ there. Um, and I think it's because they're actually truly getting to try it and they're realizing, Hey, we don't really like this. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Afghanistan. Cause I'm, I mean, I'm aware that, you know, there is a connection uh, often people are incensed by this connection, but there is some connection between military forces and Christian workers, um, and one provides space for the others. Um, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong; it just it is what it is. Uh, so there is there's certainly a connection there, and I know you know I would say this is probably one of the upsides of some of our military action there was it did provide space for the gospel to go in um, through any number of means. I don't want to say too much. But, uh, you know, we definitely I, need to keep them in our prayers. They do. I worked um, a couple of personnel recovery missions where um, the Koreans, you could not swing a bag without hitting a Korean missionary while I was there any given time. Wow. There were Korean missionaries there all the time. And they weren't there overtly spreading the gospel. They weren't like on street corners or in, in, right. or in mission. They were building dams. These were like engineers. They were doctors. They were, I mean, they were there all the time. And they were talking to Christ all the time. But they were doing it while they were providing clean reading, um, clean drinking water. They were there while they were building dams. Yeah. So they've heard the gospel, praise God. So, You, you know, when we think of missions, typically we think of Westerners going to the rest. And one of the things I do highlight on this podcast is the role of global, the global South leaders or just, you know, majority world leaders in missions. And so that's interesting. You mentioned uh, other leaders. Um, I think many times they, from an organizational standpoint, because they're not doing quote, you know, full-time mission work, they are doing other either, you know, strictly secular work or kind of humanitarian work. A lot of organizations look down on that kind of thing, which I don't think is right. But they're also, because their culture is just more bold or more upfront about faith issues, a lot of times they're way more, uh, they're, they're much bolder than Western missionaries in actually sharing wherever they are, uh, in actually sharing the gospel. And so that's an interesting thing to see. Well, and the one guy I remember vividly, I can't remember his name for the life of me, but this little short Korean guy, we got him out of this place, and he's just smiling. We negotiated it out, because what happens is you get kidnapped by local people, then you get traded up. So <laughs> you get kidnapped, and they're like, we don't know how to deal with this, and now the U.S. military is coming after him. Crap. So what they do is they trade them like up the chain of Taliban, basically. And so, and they get to a certain point where professional negotiators get involved, and basically money's exchanged. And we got them back, and they've been a little mountaineerish, and they were probably, you know, there for two months. 
and we we got them and we bring them back to the base and you know giving them food and everything he they're all smiles and i was asking the one guy so i bet you're happy to get home he goes oh no i'm gonna take a week and then i'm gonna go back <laughs> he's yeah. gonna go right back out and do it again so wow yeah wow so pray for korean missionaries exactly yeah that's amazing well, um, man, thanks for taking time today. I appreciate it. I know this is uh, heavy on your heart, and I know you're processing through it, and I'm sure it's really fresh and raw, but thanks for helping us get some understanding and perspective. Sure, I hope I was able to help a little bit. Yeah. My next guest is a retired U.S. Army officer. He was an Army Ranger, and he spent time uh, serving in Afghanistan. He's going to share a bit of his story about that there. He's also the co-leader of the Combined Arms of Veterans Network uh, right here in Houston, Texas. And he is also doing some kingdom work here as well uh, in Houston. Blaine, uh, thanks so much for taking time and coming on the show today. Great to be here. So, uh, man, a lot happening in the news right now um, that, that intersects with your world on multiple levels. Uh, maybe let's just start with a little bit of your own story. Um, I know that you served uh, in Afghanistan. Would you tell us a little bit about your time there? Sure. Yeah, I I served as a frontline combat officer with the 101st Airborne Division uh, in 2010. I uh, really joined the military, uh, not just because my family, we have a legacy of service in my family, but because of the events of 9-11. Um, I was in high school and mm-hmm. uh, I was, you know, in a class and, you know, uh, we heard about something happening and we turned on the TV and we watched these towers go down because of Al Qaeda's attack. And, right. um, I, a lot of my family members had joined the military, but that really strengthened the resolve. Like, Hey, we need to, we need to do something. We need to defend the nation. Um, I'm in. And so, uh, after doing RTC in college, I, I commissioned as an off, as an officer and, um, became a ranger and deployed to Afghanistan. And uh, it was really, uh, we, we went to a place called Kunar, which is in the east part of the country, very mountainous, um, known for its uh, uh, fundamentalism and Islamic fundamentalism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. also for its um, embrace of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda terrorism elements. And it was a really, really wild time, even nine years in to the United States war there. And um, we were in uh, daily firefights with the enemy, while at the same time um, uh, trying to do nation building and mentor Afghan forces and, and sort of move them along. And um, it, it was it was really, really wild. Um, there were a number of times I, I should have died, except by God's grace, I'm still here. I'm talking to you, which is amazing. Right. Uh, it was really hard on my girlfriend at the time, Anna. She uh, she just put up with a lot. <laughs> but um, I, I remember one time um, we were actually talking on the phone, and it was like this, you know, phone uh, sort of phone surrounded by sandbags. That was our outside communication out wow. And they started, you know, uh, trying to hit our base and our outpost. And um, Anna could hear the, the bullets ricocheting off things and the explosions. And I just said, "Hey, I gotta go." <laughs> wow, what what a <laughs> surreal phone call! Hey, hang hang yeah. on, honey. I'll be right back. I have to go shoot somebody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was really wild. It was really wild. So that was kind of commonplace, and um, a lot of uh, Afghans were sort of just. Uh, caught in the middle between 
extreme uh, extreme terrorists or uh, fundamentalists and and our efforts to try to pacify the country and, and develop places and it was just really really wild so that kept up for about uh, seven months um, and uh, we we'd been called on this um, air assault mission that's when you jump out of a helicopter onto you know a target a mountain and we uh, unfortunately the the, the, the bad guys knew that we were coming mm. and um, some of our Afghan allies that we'd been training had told the Taliban. Um, oh, man. So uh, we, we dropped in on just, um, just a hell zone and uh, lots of booby traps and, you know, things laid for us. And uh, my unit got almost surrounded and we lost a bunch of guys. And I actually, um, I was, leading a group of Afghans and, um, you know, American soldiers at the time. And I, I was really badly injured by some rocket propelled grenade fire that blew up right next to me. I should have died. Mm. Uh, the Afghan guy that I was mentoring, he died. He's actually a really, really great officer, a guy named Anand. Um, think about his family, uh, really, especially 10 years later. Um, there was a medic of ours who, uh, named Shannon Chihuahua, uh, he won a silver star posthumously for basically going in and out of fire, just a hail of bullets to rescue people mm -hmm. um, and treat them and really put his body between the enemy and the people that he was, um, that he was treating. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the process of doing that, he was shot and killed. Um, it's just really, really terrible day. That was on 12 November, 2010. And as all that was happening, um, I was uh, just sort of fighting to stay alive. I was paralyzed and um, had, had wounds all over my body, unable to move. And it really took actually about two, two and a half hours to pull to pull me out. I, I honestly didn't think I was going to make it. I, I, I had a peace though um, from the Lord uh, that because Christ had died in my place, you know, I, I wouldn't call myself particularly mature or spiritually on fire for God, but, uh, I knew that God had me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, <laughs> I was resigned to death. In fact, I didn't want to leave my guys, but, um, they ended up throwing me onto this sort of sled that, that they pulled up, um, while the helicopter was at a hover and they pulled me out and I spent, uh, 10 months recovering. Wow. Uh, well, really years recovering, but uh, excuse me, eight and a half months recovering at Walter Reed Army Hospital in Washington, D.C. So the, it's, a, it's a pretty crazy story. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, what did God do in your heart during this time? I mean, you're, you're betrayed. You're, I mean, even if you weren't betrayed, you're still shot by some other human beings. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I know that now, you know, you're serving in the refugee community in Houston. And so... Uh, I imagine there's some degree of transformation that's happened. What, what's going on there? Yeah. Uh, I, um, was, I mean, I, I think I was a, a decently faithful follower of Christ, though I was a little lukewarm in places. And I, though I, I, I really we used to pray before every mission, um, do Bible studies. You know, I, I remember, uh, talking to, you know, local people about Christ actually, but, um, about our faith in Christ, but, I, I really just was just crushed by all the events. I had a really unbelievable amount of, uh, well, not unbelievable, but uh, a lot of survivor's guilt because, mm -hmm. you know, in the military, they train you to sort of take control over everything and everything that happens is, is your 
responsibility or your or your fault you know so i i took the the guys that we lost afghan and american on my shoulders um i i was i was just really broken uh emotionally physically psychologically spiritually i, I was mad at myself I, I was mad at our commanders who had made some bad decisions i was mad at the afghans even our allies i was uh i was mad at god and um i, I was really a broken man I'm really surprised Anna stuck with me through all that. Uh, she's really incredible. Um, I definitely have PTSD. It was it was bad. Mm. Um, about nine months after uh, after that injury, I was uh, in an orthopedic surgeon's office, and he was sort of reviewing my case and deciding my fate. And I really wanted to stay in the military. That's what my dad had done, and his dad, and his dad. Um, and he told me, "Look, man, uh, yeah, you, you're all sorts of blown up." still got a ton of nerve damage in your left side you know there's no way that you're going to be able to sort of ranger your way out of this and you know i, I broke down honestly i thought what am i going to do and and it's at that time that I, that really um god had sort of forcefully gotten a hold of my you know of my shirt to shake me and say look you know um i've set you apart for myself and um just i want all of your heart mm-hmm. So I, I really surrendered again. I knew I was already a Christian, but surrendered again to the will of Jesus Christ. And out of that, uh, God called me from the military to the ministry, um, specifically to missional and sort of pastoral ministry. And I said, okay, Lord, um, you're in charge. What do I do? Um, I knew of a church in Houston that needed help with youth ministry. So I, I started seminary down here in Houston and, uh, started doing work uh, amongst the homeless with youth uh, coaching anywhere really that that people needed to know uh, Jesus and and I guess we've been in that for the last uh, that's been 10 years Wow so you know we've been following the news I'm sure you've been following the news uh, closely and um, some of it's just it's almost like you can't believe your eyes what you're seeing you know seeing yeah. guys grabbing onto airplane the you know that massive airplane there's that video that that uh, I'm sure is viral now uh, what do you what do you how do you understand what's happening currently yeah there there's a lot <laughs> that I'm that I'm feeling um, I, I'm someone that I think well that God is called to to minister in this community and I, I honestly over the past week or two have just felt like just numb and in shock mm-hmm. uh, and 20 years pouring into um, and pouring our blood and my blood and my friend's blood into um, this right. country this group of people groups um, that are so tribal and so uh, struggle with so many societal ills um, and Honestly, it's not all bad. I mean, there, there were uh, incredible strides taken in key human development indicators. I mean, lifespan, education, um, access to medical care. Um, we paved uh, a lot of the country and um, we put schools in almost every village in the country. And we allowed women to go uh, to school for the first time in a while. And so... Um, and to see that reversed is just, uh, mm-hmm. it's absolutely crushing, Brian. I mean, um, I, I really even struggle to talk about it right now. And I've been sitting with Afghan guys that we've welcomed uh, through our veterans group um, and into our home 
many, many times. Um, I've just been sitting with them and mourning um, over tea uh, and just crying out to God mm-hmm. uh, to save, to do what he does and uh, trying to um, cling to the hope of the gospel of Jesus and um, point others to do the same because mm. all I can do. Right. So as you think through all of this stuff, you know, both both what you knew of the country and you mentioned a lot of, uh, you know, progress made. Uh, Johnny, our other guest, also mentioned a lot of steps that uh, that were accomplished during that time. Um, you know, how how can Christians be praying and what is, you know, what should the church be doing right now? I think prayer is our first work. Uh, I I really think that, you know, as, as sort of a, a serial, I want to I want to go and do you know, you know, I climb the mountain and and um, get out there and uh, just just get to work. I mean, honestly, there there have been twenty years of people, uh, United States, very motivated people, working in almost every aspect of society in Afghanistan, um, with not a lot to show for it at this point. I think at the end of ourselves, um, being at the end of ourselves is good because we know that God, um, God is there. God is moving mm-hmm. and we have to go to God. We, we have to go to Jesus. We can't, at, at a certain point, you're like, this is not a problem that we can solve. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is something that God must do. So, uh, specific things to pray for, for the Afghan people, uh, as prayer requests happen, um, as we, we received calls for prayer. In fact, we met with a lot of, uh, with some faith leaders and other people in the sort of refugee care community um, in Houston. Houston's got a, a large Afghan community. Um, we just sat down with some Afghans and just listened and prayed and cried. And we heard their stories. And out of that, we've got a, a pretty good prayer guide. Um, we just put together as fast as we can. I mean, really, we want to pray for comfort from God. Um, People are having to make the decisions to leave behind elderly or sick people to, to save their families. Um, yeah, uh, women and girls um, are being rounded up um, and being forcibly married uh, by Taliban soldiers who are using them as sex slaves. Um, this is causing unbelievable anxiety for women there. Mm-hmm. There are uh, mm. one, five or two million um internally displaced refugees who, uh, you know, commerce has stopped, um, praying that, that, that comes again. And, and people, I mean, if you've left, you don't have a, a, even a way to, to, to pay for those. Um, one thing that happened in the late nineties is that the Taliban refused to let, um, international relief organizations in, um, just pray that they do. Um, because many, many, many people will starve if they don't. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really, really, really bad. Uh, pray for those um, special immigrant visa holders. Those are people who serve with us in any capacity um, from service jobs like driving a truck or, or cooking food to being a sort of frontline advisor, interpreter, linguist, and um, cultural, cultural advisors. That's like a lot of my friends here who've been resettled in Houston. And there are, um, they would estimate there were 20,000 people who applied for the visa and with their families, there's at least 80,000 people um, who worked 
closely on behalf of the oh, US wow. government. And the Taliban have extensive lists and they are murdering these people right now, today. Um, I talked to a, a good buddy, we'll call him um, Mohammed, and um, he called me crying um, this morning because his sister, even though she didn't work with the US government, her brothers did, um, just as truck drivers. Hmm. They, uh, they, they pulled uh, his sister out of her house and, and just murdered her and, and her children. Um, uh, no trial, nothing. Just, just, um, just absolute, you know, kind of barbarian stuff. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, those are some of the, the big things. Uh, one thing that, um, I mean, Brian, you probably might know more about than I do is the, like the underground church mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. Uh, we definitely need to pray the Lord with strength in their faith that he right. removed wonders so that Jesus would be known because he, he is the hope of Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, he's the savior of the world. So those I think are the, the salient prayer requests. Yeah. Well, Blaine, I know this is, um, man, old wounds, new wounds. Uh, this is fresh and raw, I'm sure for you. And, uh, we'll be praying for these things and, uh, we'll be praying for you as well. Thank you for taking time and just being willing to discuss uh, all of these issues help us help us understand and pray for the uh, the world better. Yeah, of course, Brian. My next guest is one of our church members, and uh, he and his wife recently stepped down from pastoring in Mississippi, and they moved to Houston to work with Afghan uh, refugees. And so they got here right in the middle of COVID seems like an unlikely time to move. And yet I would say looking at the news today, it's uh, very timely that God picked them up and moved them out here uh, when he did. Hey, Josh, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So Josh, I don't, we don't want to say too much about exactly, uh, where you live and, and all of that. Um, but you were here in Houston, uh, living in, um, in a very international area, and I know that you're working with Afghans, and so that's probably enough enough context. But what does it look like for you guys uh, kind of on a day-to-day basis? I know you're very new here. Uh, I've heard you're doing language studies as well. So just tell Trying. us a little bit about, like, what, is, what does that look like? Yeah, so <clears throat> for us, uh, just as far as – so we live in an apartment complex where we have maybe 10 Afghan families. And so uh, they've been here for a while. And so just, you know, being neighborly just trying to get to know our neighbors and build relationships. And uh, that's what we're doing in our apartment complex there. But most of our work has been with the refugees that are coming in. So Mm. obviously because of the current situation and really what it's been over the last, you know, several years, you have many of these uh, interpreters or people who worked at the embassy. um, They're coming in on these special immigrant visas. And so when they come, uh, they don't have, they don't have anything. I mean, you know, they have the clothes they bring with them and sometimes they'll bring a rug or two, uh, mm-hmm. but they don't have anything. And so we, we find these needs, um, they need beds, they need couches. And so we just do a lot of access ministry. We, uh, find out what they need. We go and we pray for them in the name of Jesus for these things. And as we get them, we provide it for them. And so we just, um, just really day to day, it's finding needs, trying to meet those needs and, just trying to love on them, you know, as Jesus has called us to. And 
that opens up opportunities for us to have conversations about their religion and about ours. And, and so it, it just opens up a lot of conversations. So just in general, it's meeting those needs, building relationships and, and having gospel conversations. Yeah. So the, the, the Afghan people who are here already, um, I know a lot of times when we're watching the news, we kind of just assume that the people who are here are the exact people that we're seeing there and it's happening in real time. But I I think there's a bit of lag. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, most of the Afghans that we have here are, are from kind of a decade ago per se. I mean, I know some are incoming, but, but they've been in the pipeline for a while. Yeah. Well, most of the Afghans that I encounter have been here, have gotten here in the last, say, I mean, anywhere from one month to oh wow to six years. Um, most of the ones that I've met, mm-hmm. I've not mm-hmm. met any that have been here for more than six or seven years. Okay. And so most of the ones that are coming here are coming because they have these special immigrant visas. Yeah. And so as far as Houston, now you do have other cities like right. Fremont, California, with the Russian invasion, you have, you know, third generation Afghans there. Wow. Wow. Um, but as far as Houston, a lot of these are, they've come in the last few years. Yeah. Just because of uh, the situation in Afghanistan. So, yeah, but they've been, they've been in the pipeline for a bit. I mean, they're, they're coming as a result of really, I mean, I guess the war in Afghanistan has gone for 20 years now, Yeah, yeah, uh, which is crazy to think about because yeah. okay. I was, you know, right in college. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's great. Well, you think you think it's not that long ago, but then you think twenty years. I mean, I remember being in high school. Right. So I mean, I've been out of high school for twenty years. Right. That's, yeah. I know. That's that's the other <laughs> shock. That's that's the real shock of yeah. this whole story is how old we are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but back, kind uh, of kind of back to the main story. I mean, you know, you're watching the same news I am, and it's yeah. it's shocking. Uh, yeah. My eyes, I didn't believe what I was seeing the first time I saw the video of the guys on the plane. Yeah. Um, but I would say to some degree, this has been going on for at least a little while as the troops have been pulling back. And I know, I know that there's been some stories, even for Houston, uh, families, the ways that they have been impacted already by families. And I mean, like a month ago, two months ago, you know, it's kind of come to a a head now, but how, you know, are there any stories that you can share? I mean, help, help us put a... Let's put a context on this on a local level. How are Houston Afghan families being impacted yeah. okay. by this? So <clears throat> yesterday, so the last couple of days, for those of us um, that are working with these Afghans, has been there's been a lot of phone calls, a lot of texts. Um, and so, for instance, we have a neighbor um, who, uh, it's a couple, they got here maybe a couple of years ago, and the wife worked at the U.S. Embassy, and they have uh, four kids. And when they came with their, when they came here two years ago, their two oldest daughters were over 20 years old, mm-hmm. so they weren't able to be get their visas and come here because they weren't dependents anymore. And so um, right now, um, their two daughters are single, and they're stuck in Kabul, and. Uh, the parents are just uh, a mess, as you can imagine, mm. uh, because the Taliban are. They're going in right now, going door to door. They're trying to figure out who has worked for the military or whose families have worked for the military. They're even pulling out single women and already trying to force them to marry the Taliban. So you have this couple over here that they're just uh, helpless. They're distraught. 
and um, they said they told me yesterday they just feel completely hopeless there's nothing they can do and um, they're just praying and so that's one of the things that we're trying to do with them pray with them uh, and um, you know just ask the Lord to intervene and and so but you know that's just that's probably the situation for really every Afghan family here. I mean, they have some family that's over there, mm-hmm. whether it's a parent or a brother or sister. And that's the thing. They find out, the Taliban, they find out, okay, well, your brother worked for the military and he's in the United States, so now we're going to kill you. Um, and so that's one of the big things that's happening. Uh, another thing, I had a phone call at 1030 last night from um, two brothers that wanted me to, they're just kind of frantic. They're trying to do everything they can to get their families out of there. Um, they wanted me to sign some paperwork that, that I'm not qualified to sign, um, to try to get their father out because he worked in the military Mm. and they're, they know that it's, it's, well, it's very likely that he's going to be killed. And so people are scared. Uh, people are frantic. And not only that, um, just the fact that, you know, their flag was taken down. I mean, their government's no longer in place. Uh, and even here in America, it's just with the ones that are here, they're very, uh, they're just grieving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, the Taliban's in the presidential palace and, mm. you know, they, you know, you imagine how much we value being Americans um, and to imagine someone coming in, taking our flag down, our president fleeing, It'd be a you know really hard pill to swallow, and it's just it's really difficult for for these people. And so, you know, it's it's hard for us. I think it's you know it's just an opportunity though um, for us to show compassion to um, let them know that we're praying for them, and even just to be with them. I think that's one of the things just to go and sit. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes as these people are grieving, it's it, it means a lot. Yeah, so uh, we do have a lot of uh, people from Afghanistan here in Houston. They've they've been here, probably one of the oldest families I know has been here about uh, 10 years. So I think with part of the refugee life cycles, it, it typically takes families about 10 to 12 years to get here. Uh, they actually yeah. own a, a restaurant down uh, kind of in the Gulfton area, yeah. and that was kind of their story. They helped uh, our troops and um, – you know, they, they were able to, they were in the early wave of immigrants, which yeah. is thankful for them. But, you know, it, it, there sounds like tens of thousands of people that have not been able to make that happen yet. Um, so I think the likelihood of people listening to this who might meet uh, people from Afghanistan um, is relatively high, especially in cities like Houston. Um, and, you know, any of the major urban areas probably have uh, refugees already. And so, man, what do we, what do we do? I think sometimes when, you know, our only understanding of foreign cultures is what we see on the media. Yeah. And so when people think, you know, Afghanistan, they think Taliban, which, you know, is is only partially true. Yeah. Uh, You know, no single story about Afghanistan is true. And so that's that's partially true. But there's a ton of really good people. There's an underground church there. There's Afghan Christians there. You know, there's there's so many layers to Afghanistan. Um, What are some practical things that we can do here? Uh, if we meet people from Afghanistan? Yeah, I, I think for us, I mean, well, for one, they're they're just people. <laughs> you know, they're people that want relationships. Um, they're, you know, as far as like when we interact with people, you know, we, we ask a lot about their culture. You know, people like to talk about where they're from and their culture. And so, 
you know, just um, being concerned about who they are and where they come from and what their culture is like. And so just uh, trying to build relationships. I think when we run into these people, um, I know one of the things as we run into these guys who are SIVs, special immigrant visas that helped our military, because uh, most of them that come are going to have some tie to our military and working mm-hmm. with them. And so one of the big things that we try to talk to them about is their service and try to thank them for what they've done. And uh, that means a lot to them because they take a lot of pride in the fact, you know, just like our military, right. you know, our, we, we thank our veterans and we, we should thank these guys. And that's one of the big things. That's one of the first things I ask when I meet these guys. So were, are you SIV? Did you help our military? And uh, they say yes. And again, just a, a way to, to thank them. And that often gets conversations going. And, um, and you know, as you get to know these people, if you have opportunity, say invite them into your home. Because that's a huge that's a huge thing uh, for these people. Uh, as Americans, we have this thing called Southern hospitality, but they put us to shame. Mm-hmm. You know, they're for uh, sure. Yeah, it's like we invite someone to our home, we feed them, and it's like okay, you, we've got a you know a little bit of food here and a little bit of food there, and you go over there, and it's like to their homes, and it's it's just so much food, and and they take a lot of pride in that. Mm-hmm. So just building those relationships and inviting them into your home, a lot of these. There are Afghans that have been here for years and have never been invited into an American home. And so uh, I think that's um, one thing that's, you know, to consider. And, and so, yeah, just talk to people, ask questions uh, about, you know, Afghanistan and why they're here. And, you know, they're people. Just have conversation and show that you care. I think that's one thing. Yeah, I think that's really key. You know, this this whole episode for Nations Reaching Nations has been really weird because I don't normally talk about, you know, geopolitics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when we think of these massive global crises, it's it's easy to just get – I think the term is compassion fatigue or there's yeah. just this overwhelming sense. And particularly coming off of 2020 and even a lot of 2021 has been pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, it's easy to just feel like every problem that we're faced, you can kind of just get tone deaf or think, well, the problem's so big, there's nothing I can do. But I, I think your answer is fantastic because I always tell people, look, the answer to you know Houston's over seemingly overwhelming uh, international population and influx of world religions and everything else, the answer to this isn't some major change everything about the way you're doing life and church and whatever. Yeah. The answer is really pretty simple. It's probably you've got a neighbor from somewhere else Go knock on their door, say hello, bring them yeah. some cookies, have them over, drink tea, whatever. Right. Like the the, the first step solution is probably really really simple. I mean, yeah. as I've chatted with with the other guests on on this episode today, you know the the issues are so large and and there's so many thousands of people that are being affected. It's it's hard to think of what can we do, even if you were in something in our government, which you know you and I are not. Right. But even if we had some governmental position, it's overwhelming to think through. How do you fix this? Yeah. How do you help people? And it's even more so for us. But I think we've just got to find those ways um, to just honestly reach out and show hospitality. Yeah. Um, so let's wrap up with this question. Uh, how can we be praying for Afghanistan and the people there? Yeah. So you mentioned an underground church. Um, so <clears throat> I don't know if this something I've heard from Afghan believers is that, and some others is that in Afghanistan percentage wise, um, Afghanistan is the second fastest growing church Hmm. right now, Iran being the first, um, it'd be in the Muslim world then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, 
anyway, that's one of the things right now. Um, there are believers that are trying to get out. There are believers that are staying. And so I think that's one thing, praying for the church uh, that's there. You know, it's, um, you know, you look throughout, you know, you look in the book of Acts and you see times of persecution and sometimes when mm-hmm. the gospel is really, um, you know, spread. And so, um, you know, just praying for the church and, and wisdom for them and, mm-hmm. and protection. And we know in some cases there, I mean, there's a very good chance that some of these believers will be killed. Right. And so just praying that God would um, give them strength and perseverance, you know, to per- persevere to the end. I think that's uh, a big prayer for them right now. Um, I think um, for for the ones here, I, I think just pray for for comfort and peace for these people and even pray that their families can get out of there. I mean, we, you know, I know that some, you know, there are different ideas about whether they should stay in their country or come out. I know there are different ideas. Um, but for a lot of these people, they have, they even have children that are stuck over there. Uh, and so just praying that some of these people can get out and get back to their families. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then also I think, Another way that we can be praying for the church here is that we can be salt and light um, to the Afghans that are here. They really, I, I think they need us. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a, we need to be praying for the church here that we can reach out, be salt and light in the way that Jesus has called us to. So, um, so yeah, I think pray for the church there. Pray for those trying to get out. They're trying to be reunited with their families and just pray for the church here that we can be salt and light. So, yeah. I think those are both really great points, and um, you know whether they're Christian or not, the answer to this situation is there. There probably is no answer for most of these people. Yeah. They are just stuck yeah. in this impossible situation, and yeah. endurance, perseverance, is the only thing that they've got. And I think from a, a Christian perspective, particularly as we think about persecuted Christians, mm-hmm. you know, at our church here, uh, every week I have conversations with uh, people from. Uh, you know, West Africa, where there's some Muslim movements um, from North Africa, where, you know, there's just persecution happening around the world that I hear every week. And it's a hard conversation to have with people. But the reality is that persecution is is the normal Christian experience. Right. And obviously here in the church in America, comfort is the, the preferred yeah. uh, mode yeah. <laughs> of operation, mode of spirituality. And uh, we're shocked to realize sometimes God doesn't re- remove persecution. He lets yeah. believers die. Um, and, and, I mean, we have to work through how we feel about that and how we think about what the Bible says about mm-hmm. that. But uh, the reality is uh, persecution is normal. And you brought it up. You know, in the book of Acts, we see where persecution actually is what spreads the church. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm, I'm sad when I – I mean, I know Christians where I served as a missionary in the Middle East. And, I mean, they were persecuted. And it's sad. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it's uh, for, for whatever reason, God seems to have ordained this process. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot to handle, especially, you know, coming from a, a comfort background. And and I don't necessarily expect comfort, but I, I just have had a lot. Yeah. That's been most of my Christian experience where it's not been very trying. And it's not, you know, worse, typically the worst thing that happens to us is somebody might shout at us or something, yeah. might, might look right. disapprovingly on what we're doing. Yeah. Shut the door in our face. Right. Yeah. Or, or like right now you've got so many Christians thinking, talking about being persecuted by our own government or media. <laughs> and it, it all, what it's that like, means is like, yeah, we're not thought fondly of anymore, but yeah. like, we don't know persecution. We don't know persecution. Yeah. 
And these I, people do, right? They do. Yeah. And and I, and I think they're they're gonna they're gonna teach us what it's like. And um, yeah, we need well, to keep them our prayers. And I would just say too, I think this is an opportunity for for Christians. I mean, especially here in Houston, these other large cities. I mean, you know, we have been called to go to the nations and. God continues to bring them here, mm-hmm. and uh, it really is. It's an opportunity for us to love on these people and and share with them where there is hope, um, and it's found in Jesus. And just a, it's a really great opportunity that God's given us. And, you know, you almost hate to call it an opportunity because of what they're going right. through, but it, but it, in a sense, it really is. And so um, I think we need to take advantage of it. I, I think when we look at the Bible and we see – when God has people on the move, he's doing something. Mm, yeah. And we, we see that his whole strategy throughout the Bible is moving people around, right? It starts yeah. in the garden where he says, go and fill the earth. Uh, it happens after the flood where he says, go and fill the earth. It yeah. happens as they go to Egypt and are spread there and go back mm. to Israel and are spread there. And as they go into exile, as the New Testament church, you know, is spread out through persecution. I mean, just again yeah. and again and again, you see God spreading the nations out and then bringing them back and spreading yeah. them out and bringing them back. And God's at work. Yeah, I agree. I believe that he is, uh, you know, and just even with us moving here this year, you know, I'm a, as a pastor in, in a rural area, never would have thought that I'd be coming to Houston to work with Afghans, and mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. And to imagine that God has brought us here and the timing of all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, we know of other um, missionaries that are coming out of Afghanistan right now. They're moving here to work with Afghans. And so we believe that God is going to do something in Houston with the Afghans. We really do. So it's it's an exciting time. It's a really sad time, but... We believe that God is, you know, he's moving people around and we believe he's at work here. So it's exciting. Mm, Great. Well, Josh, thanks for coming on the show, man. Yep. Thanks for having me. So our next uh, guest on the program is the program manager for a refugee resettlement agency here in Houston called Houston Welcomes Refugees. And her name is Cindy. Cindy, welcome to the program. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my, my, my pleasure. I'm glad you're here. Um, so, Cindy, you know, we've all been watching the news. Um, you obviously watch the news with very different eyes because, you know, I know that there's a life cycle from when uh, some crisis happens in a country to when we receive refugees. And so I'm sure you are watching the news thinking, you know, in the near future and even distant future of, you know, how does this impact uh, your work, but what were some of the things that went through your head when you, you know, saw some of the video footage and have read some of the articles? The first thought that went through my mind was the fact that I know people in Afghanistan who are stuck and trying desperately to come to the United States. My first thoughts went to the Afghan friends that I have here in Houston who have family members or the recent arrivals who went back for the summer who are now unable to get flights mm. back to so that definitely was very distressing to realize that there were people that were connected with Houston Welcomes refugees um, that were stuck in Afghanistan. And then secondly, I definitely was just anticipating that many of the arrivals um, to the United States from Afghanistan would start to pick up pace quite rapidly. Um, they are processing evacuees from Afghanistan in record time. Mm-hmm. 
In the past, we would, if, a, if an Afghan interpreter received his special immigrant visa, we might get 30 days notice that he was coming, but now it's days notice. So wow. big change. Everything's accelerating. Wow. Well, that's good. Uh, I mean, especially for the people who are in need of that. Yes. Yeah. So, so I know that uh, Houston Welcomes Refugees uh, services the refugee community at large, um, but you know, can you give us any idea? You know, what would be your best guess as to how many Afghans are currently in Houston? Right, there are several thousand Afghans in Houston. Um, I wish I could give you a firmer number, but along the Gulfton area in Sharpstown. Um, there are whole apartment complexes that are kind of like little Afghan villages here mm -hmm. in Houston that many people are not even aware of. Um, so we have one of the largest Afghan communities in the United States. Northern California has the largest, but we have been the top receiving city for Afghan special immigrant visa holders now for a while. And so um, Houston is a very attractive place to Afghans, not only for our diversity, but also because of the community that already exists here. Our partner agency, which is YMCA International Services, posted on social media this week that we might expect to see um, 300 Afghans in just the next six weeks. Wow. Wow. So I'm sure you're getting this question a lot. Um, and, and so the question is kind of in two parts. One is, you know, people always ask, well, what can we do in a time like this? And the second thing I, I would also ask is, you know, what is HWR doing and, and are there ways that, that people can be helping you now? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, I would say I would love for people to, you know, pray for Afghanistan, pray for the Afghans here in Houston who are experiencing family separation. There's a lot of people who are reaching out to their American friends asking, how can I get my family members over to the United States? You can also advocate for Afghan evacuation and resettlement. There are organizations like um, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services and many advocacy groups who are sending letters to Congress, just making sure that we are being responsible mm -hmm. and um, paying the debt that we owe to these people who put their lives on the lines to assist the U.S. military. In terms of Houston Welcomes Refugees, we are hosting orientations to give people the opportunity to serve refugees. We just added two online orientations. One is going to be um, Friday around noon, and the next is next Tuesday um, at 7 o'clock p.m., but you can go on our website, HoustonWelcomesRefugees.com, and select an orientation that is convenient for you. We do both online and in-person orientations. And you can participate in one of three ways to engage refugees. The first is donating welcome kit items. Welcome kits are household items that um, make an empty apartment into a home so that a refugee can spend some of the, their personal funds and federal welcome money on other items. Um, so empower their spending. We also have move-in teams that set up apartments for refugees when they arrive to Houston. And then finally, the heartbeat of our organization is welcome teams. These are groups of people who walk alongside refugees in friendship and support as they acclimate to life in Houston. So please visit our website and you can look at those dates. What is the, what is the website? It's www.houstonwelcomesrefugees.com. All right. Um, 
are you familiar with any stories of how this is impacting Afghan families here in Houston? I mean, do they have extended family that are that are being harmed right now or that, or that need help right now? Um, yes. I know of a situation where um, someone just – a woman's brother – um, just received his approval to mm-hmm. get his special immigrant visa. And the next day, Kabul was taken over. And so oh, all wow. of the to the United States were canceled. Um, and so she is very worried about how her brother is going to come to the United States. The last I heard, he was able to get on a flight yesterday. Um, but there was some delay to that flight, which um, I don't have clarity on. I also know of a family who went, they came to the United States just very recently, but then they went back to visit family and they had booked a flight for late September to come back to the United States. Um, And, you know, obviously that flight has been canceled and so they're kind of stuck. But finally, we had a family that was supposed to arrive yesterday. Um, We had them scheduled, we Mm -hmm. had a move-in team set up for them and then their flight was canceled. So they're now um, stuck in Kabul. So there's actually many, many people who have been reaching out to us, you know, again, with family members and friends who are desperately trying to leave Afghanistan at this time. Wow. Wow, it's so heavy. How, how would you say that people should be praying during this time? I would pray for God to reveal himself to the Afghan people, for them to just know that he is there and that he loves them and that he sees their situation. I would pray for the government forces, the military, the people who are in power, um, for just conviction in their hearts that they would do the right thing by the Afghan people um, and show kindness and compassion. And I would also pray for the Taliban. I would pray that their hearts would be um, softened and that they would um, just choose to behave in a manner that is moral and um, not seek to do harm. So there's just so many prayer needs at this time. I would pray for the families that are separated for comfort. Um, there are people in Afghanistan who are sleeping in the streets, experiencing food shortages because they are just trying to wait by the airport for a flight. Mm-hmm. So there's it's a very desperate situation, and I would just pray that God would provide, that he would make provisions for them, but then also just show up in a way that that they might know that he is real and um, seeking to draw people to himself. Cindy, thank you so much for making time and coming on the show. One more time, could you tell us what the website is for HWR? Yes, it's www.houstonwelcomesrefugees.com. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. So as we've gone through these various interviews and and thinking of Afghanistan, I've had another side discussion with a a friend of mine from our church, and he's from a very different part of the world, but has gone through a similar thing. His name is Santigi, and he's actually going to appear in next week's podcast, and I highly recommend listening to that because I think it tells the hopeful side of what can God do in times of crisis and in times of tragedy. His name's Santigi. And this is just a short clip from our conversation earlier today where he's talking about uh, some of those feelings he had in watching the news. And I'm going to go ahead and play that clip for you now. It's both memories, you know. When I saw Pakistan, Afghanistan, what was going on, I said, oh my goodness, we went through that. So I was sitting watching my TV 
And I'm saying, it's not a movie. That's real. Right. It has happened to me. It has happened to many people. Mm-hmm. So, oh, that's a difficult, difficult situation. So I hope the people in Pakistan and Afghanistan, you know, they will find a refuge. You know, but uh, that's a tough situation. I just said, God is doing something. They will come out of it. You know, we went through that, you know, through what's happening in Afghanistan, God is going to do something miracle, especially for the Christians there. And I know, you know, they will have a testimony, just like I have a testimony today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so in Sierra Leone, they, they went through a, a, a war and then a civil right. war, and, yes. um, and so you get to hear more of his story. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just going to close with a simple reading of the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, because mm-hmm. I think probably all of our guests who've come on the show today, if, if when I when I ask, you know, what can we do, you know, as the the doers in us, we want to get something done. We want to fix the problem. And sometimes these global tragedies, uh, God is doing something that, that we can't do. And right. so I think in times like this, we just have to reflect on right. what is God doing? Yeah. So Santigi, would you just close us with the Our Father? Okay. Our Father in heaven, I will be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Nations Reaching Nations. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Nation Reaching Nation. Reaching Nation.